I know what you're thinking. I can feel your eyes rolling to the sky and back into your skulls. Yes, we're going to talk this week about an opposition candidate in Russia's upcoming presidential election. A race that Vladimir Putin is sure to win. A race that isn't really a race at all. An election that demands all kinds of caveats and provisos just to use the word elections. More specifically, we're talking about Boris or Boris Nadezhdin, whose name incidentally has its roots in the Russian word for hope, Nadezhda. Nadezhdin has inspired just that in tens of thousands of Russians as the politician with an anti-war message who's come the furthest so far in the country's Byzantine candidacy bureaucracy. At the time I'm recording these words, Nadezhdin's campaign says it's collected roughly 200,000 signatures, which is twice what it technically needs for the Central Election Commission to add his name to the ballot in March. But it's likely that officials will throw out enough of these signatures on technicalities to disqualify him from running. And I get it, folks, that these dismal prospects inspire a fatalism that makes it hard to care about Nadezhdin or Russia's presidential race. Not only is he sure to lose, he's almost certain to be barred from the election itself. But the Nadezhdin campaign has been a major news event for anti-war Russians, especially in the ever-growing diaspora, where thousands of people have lined up in cities across Europe and the Caucasus. And these people are not deluded. They know the campaign is doomed, but it means something to them because it says something about them. So let's try to figure out what it says. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Howdy, folks. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock. And this week, we're talking about Boris Nadezhdin, specifically his presidential campaign. And we'll get into the Russian opposition and electoral politics more generally. We're welcoming back Dr. Margarita Zavadskaya, a senior research fellow at the Finnish Institute of International Affairs, who was kind enough to let me bombard her with questions about this Nadezhdin guy and why the heck so many people even care about him at all. But first, I want to remind listeners that Medusa is marking, marking, not celebrating, the first anniversary of our designation by the Russian authorities as an undesirable organization. Yes, this is me asking and encouraging you to click the hyperlink in this episode's description to make a donation, preferably a recurring pledge, to help sustain Medusa's independent journalism. Just supporting Medusa carries the risk of felony prosecution for Russian nationals, which is why we rely on you, our international audience. Your assistance makes it possible for thousands of people inside Russia to read Medusa and stay informed, both about their own country and about the outside world. Please remember, a recurring pledge, even a small one, helps us stay afloat the best. Okay, before we jump in, let me get you up to speed a bit with some additional context. For starters, Nadezhdin isn't the opposition's first great hope for an anti-war candidate in this presidential election, which will be held between March 15th and March 17th. Yekaterina Dunsova, a journalist and a former city council member in a town about three hours west of Moscow, made her own splash earlier in the race. She advocates ending the war in Ukraine, instituting democratic reforms, and freeing political prisoners, all the good stuff. In early November, she announced her intention to seek candidacy as an independent, but in late December, the Central Election Commission rejected her nomination documents, citing misprints and typos. The Supreme Court later upheld the decision, and she never reached the stage of collecting signatures. 
Boris Nadezhdin, on the other hand, was nominated by a registered political party, the Civic Initiative Party. In the first three weeks after his nomination, he collected 25,000 signatures in pursuit of the needed 100,000. For politicians with a registered political party's nomination, the election commission demands between 100,000 and 105,000 signatures. But these endorsements have to come from citizens registered across the country, which is the biggest logistical hurdle in all this. Candidates cannot submit more than 2,500 signatures from any one region of Russia, which means you can't just collect everything you need in Moscow and St. Petersburg. You need to piece together batches of 2,500 signatures from voters across Russia's 40 different federal regions. After Nadezhdin's initial 25,000 signatures, he started gaining media attention, and the pace of his collection drive accelerated rapidly. The campaign now says it's done collecting signatures, it has twice the needed number, and it will be submitting them from voters in 20 different regions. Nadezhdin's campaign also says it won't even submit the signatures it collected abroad from the diaspora because it's gotten so many inside Russia. For good or ill, as we'll discuss soon, Nadezhdin has also attracted the public support of several prominent members of the anti-Kremlin opposition. On January 24th, Alexei Navalny's wife, Yulia, came to one of his campaign offices and gave her signature, though she didn't comment on it afterward. Nadezhdin has also gotten endorsements from rock star Yuri Shevchuk, politician Maxim Katz, former oligarch Mikhail Hrodkovsky, as well as several members of Alexei Navalny's team, including Ruslan Shavidinov, though he wrote on Twitter that he tried to give his signature and the campaign office rejected it, calling him an unreliable element, whatever that means. So, roughly speaking, that's where we are now. Nadezhdin has spent much of his political career among Russia's systemic liberals, as they're called. He's been in and out of parties at one point during the December 2011 protests against election fraud, he declared his wish to create a party with former finance minister Alexei Kudrin, who'd recently hinted at objections to Putin's political ideology. There's a lot to get into, but the most important question in all this is the first one that I asked our guest this week, Dr. Margarita Zavadskaya. Will Nadezhdin even be allowed onto the ballot this March? Uh, it's a $1 million question, so uh, I wish I know, but I think the more people he attracts, and if another Yulia Navalny comes to sign, I mean, to put her signature to support his candidacy, so he's running a serious risk of not being allowed to run. So the more prominent oppositionists come to his support, the less likely it is that he'll be allowed on the ballot. Yeah, this is how I personally see the situation, although we don't really know. He looks like an unusually, suspiciously relaxed person, uh, <laughs> given the circumstances, for a person who is challenging the Kremlin. So this is a bit of a puzzling <laughs> story for me, but yeah, we'll see. So for listeners who all they know is like, oh, there's some guy who maybe he's going to be allowed on the ballot. And wasn't there some lady before him? Who is Boris Nadezhdin? Like, who is this guy? Is he is he the genuine article or is he just some rando who wandered into the race? Well, he's someone, uh, something in between. So he's definitely a politician. So he's a career-oriented person. And he genuinely and to some certain extent kind of skillfully was trying to navigate the ebbs and flows of the Russian politics kind of still remaining the systemic liberal. He tried to coalesce with Alexei Kudrin. He even kind of uh, announced uh, his own party together with Kudrin back in the uh, good old days, 2011, 20, uh, 2012. So then he was also kind of, a, even earlier in the late 90s, he was the, uh, the Dumas MP. So he basically was always running on this kind of, you know, pretty moderate liberal platform, which kind of makes him in a sense, like a real politician, but on the other hand, he also kind of uh, was trying to make certain compromises, sometimes becoming 
almost like a spoiler candidate in a way. But given his uh, record, impressive record of political failures and non-elections, kind of gives us the hint that maybe he's, he's a genuine thing. So it's not like just a, another Xenia Sobchak or a person who is clear or Davankov, so another candidate who is a candidate for youth, a candidate for молодежи, how the Russian television uh, positions him. Zavadsky just referred to Vladislav Davankov, a State Duma deputy speaker and a leader of the New People Party's parliamentary faction. Medusa's sources say the Kremlin's domestic politics team believes that Davankov can attract many of the liberal voters who are drawn to Nadezhdin. At the same time, Davankov won't be platforming on anything remotely anti-war or anti-Putin. His party, the New People Party, is a spoiler group that's meant to dilute the liberal electorate by posing as an opposition force. Ksenia Sabchak, meanwhile, is a socialite journalist person who ran for president in 2018. She ran on the ticket of the same party that nominated Nadezhdin, incidentally, the Civic Initiative Party. But unlike Nadezhdin, Sabchak's campaign was conducted in close coordination with the Putin administration's political team. After the election, in which Sabchak placed fourth behind Putin, Pavel Grudinin of the Communist Party, and the late Vladimir Zhirinovsky, journalists learned that she had discussed her campaign platform directly with Sergei Kirienka, who supervises the Kremlin's domestic policy team. But, yeah, so he's something in between. So his moderate stance makes him closer to the kind of spoiler for people on the Russian political landscape and the fact that he was allowed on the federal channels. Of course, all the time when he tries to express anti-war stance or claims Putin needs to go, so he's immediately, you know, kind of is, is, is drowned by the TV anchors, so it's quite clear. So he's kind of, you know, a boy for beating, in a sense. Maybe, yes, he's something in between. So he looks as a bit of a dodgy person, but given the circumstances, he looks like a perfect focal point for the opposition coordination. I wanted to ask you a little bit about like the nature of being a Russian liberal politician, whether you're a spoiler or whether you're the, the genuine article and you never get anywhere. Like my understanding is that typically it's most of it is like market liberalism it has to do with like getting the government out of various industries. But then you have, I mean, I don't know, people in Yablaka are generally described as liberals, but they have more like social democrat views. And so when talking, I know, for one thing, I know that like talking about Nadezhdin's platform is a little bit ridiculous because it's not like people are lining up for him in the diaspora because they've read his his website's platform and they've said, oh, we really like his tax policy. I know it really comes down to the anti-war stuff and I do want to talk about that. But just for listeners, when they hear the word Russian liberal, what should they be understanding exactly? That's a perfect question. So thanks for asking. I guess it means like economic liberalism. So something we would call in like more US or I would even say like continental European context, like a neoliberal platform. So people who are advocating for uh, the shrinking of state that we need to kind of, you know, stick to the more orthodox policies when it comes to like, you know, bank disciplines and things like that. So we really need to kind of, you know, keep our spending under control. So and to keep our you know, sheets balanced and things like that. So it's a pretty classical center-right platforms in economic terms, obviously. But what we know about Boris Nadezhdin, so when I was kind of, you know, trying to recall his political biography and did some, you know, I tried to refresh so my knowledge of who this guy is. And I found I was surprised by the fact that he was actually trying to play together with the Russian nationalists uh, during the Fofe elections. And I found it quite interesting. So During which elections? If you remember, like 2011, 2012, so the Fofe okay. election movement, so when... Russia had the uh, State Duma elections, and then there was like a lot of interesting political brewing around the 
those elections, especially before and a little bit after, before the Pussy Riot imprisonment and stuff. So then the whole thing and the political regime changed quite drastically. But before that, there were very interesting kind of attempts to find coalition partners. And I think Nadezhda was kind of trying to play this interesting game uh, with Russian nationalists. So I think even Alexei Navalny was accused, is quite often accused of doing pretty much the same thing. So I'm not sure to what extent it was a genuine move of his like, you know, heart and soul, but definitely tried something. Probably it was a very strategic or tactical move. So, uh, but then uh, his back then partner Prokhorov said like, no, we're not going to do that. And you're going to be expelled from the party, the right cause party. A bit more background here. More than 20 years ago, Nadezhdin served in the third convocation of the State Duma, meaning that he was a federal lawmaker from 1999 to 2003, and he served as a deputy from the Union of Right Forces Party, which was led in part then by Boris Nemtsov. Roughly a decade later, Nadezhdin was the head of the Right Cause Political Party's Moscow regional branch. In 2012, the party nominated billionaire Mikhail Prokhorov to run for president. Like Subchak would do six years later, Prokhorov coordinated his campaign closely with the Kremlin. A year before that election, however, Prokhorov led Nadezhdin's ouster from Right Cause after Nadezhdin started interacting with Russian nationalists and talking about ethnic politics publicly. Prokhorov declared that there was no room in the party for anyone with xenophobic views. So, yeah, make your choice. But apart from that, yeah, so it's, it's mostly about economy. It's closer to libertarianism, but it's not really libertarianism. And of course, it's uh, quite far away from social democratic position. More, yeah, shared by Yabloko is quite different. So it's something here. So like systemic liberal. So this is the, uh, those liberals who are probably closer to Kudrin, maybe even to Bice in their vision. So Nadezhdin is also well known uh, for being a friend of uh, Boris Nemtsov. So in this sense, so he also has kind of, you know, g- good pedigree in a sense. And But on the other hand, so he has always been, you know, playing by the rules. In terms of the, the wartime economy, it would seem as though that kind of political thinking is more out of fashion now than it has been at any point in the last 30 years. Absolutely. This is true. So, (laughs) and I think this is exactly one of the explanations why he is allowed to speak his mind. Out of context, he looks like a very decent person. So, and what he's saying, so it really rings a bell for the majority, to the majority of Russian nationals who really are sick and tired of the war. And in this sense, so if like we kind of, you know, get rid of all the propaganda and kind of dodgy connections. So he looks like for strategic purposes. You know, if you just handle your nose and you just go to the poll, so it works. So he's a perfect candidate for that. Let's talk about the degree to which he is anti-war. What has he managed to say that, and, and, you know, based on what he said, what does that indicate to you that his position is? Well, if we just just walk through his statements he made in public, it's basically that the war needs to end as soon as possible. And he's advocating for the peace treaty with Ukraine. So in terms of like concrete policy suggestions, so this is his uh, opinion, but he never ever specified what kind of, what are the terms and conditions. So of course, no mentions of Crimea or Donbass or Kherson. So these things are not specified. And I think this is also kind of strategic because he really knows that uh, he needs to start from, you know, maybe more basic things. So let's agree that the war needs to be stopped. That's it. So, and then let's agree on some other things. So it's super vague at the moment, but but given the Russian political landscape, what is allowed to say and what is not, so it already looks quite radical. Nadezhdin even himself called himself like I'm a radical politician. So, and because once he was accused, oh, you're like one of an, another liberal puppet to be shown on the federal TV, and he said, oh, am I? I'm a real radical. So that was a kind of a interesting statement to be made. Yeah. 
that sort of talk is very unsatisfying to a lot of people in the West, especially in Ukraine. But if he were to actually say, we need to give back Crimea, we need to, you know, give back the rest of Eastern Ukraine, that would be illegal to say that, actually. He could just, they could just throw him straight in jail, let alone not put him on the ballot. Yeah, true. But uh, also, let's not forget that Vladimir Solovyov in one of his shows uh, clearly just, like, very blatantly said, like, okay, this guy needs to be arrested, like, as soon as possible. So he was kind of also was attacked by Solovyov and they by ultra patriots. So in the sense, so he also has this interesting oral vibe of a pretty brave person, again, by the current Russian standards. But again, so of course, he looks pretty dodgy. And uh, I think the majority of even Russian political exiles, they understand that this guy is probably not the ideal candidate. So and this kind of vote we call like political scientists call strategic vote. So it's not sincere. It's not something that comes from the bottom of your heart. So we just do something that we can do. So like the least evil in the sense. Yeah. You described basically why whatever he said, even if like what he says sounds watered down and if he has dodgy connections and kind of has like spent a career navigating the, you know, ugly waters of Russian politics, he stands out from somebody like Senya Subchak. I mean, he's, he's braver and the, the context is very different, but why is he so different from somebody like Subchak or Mikhail Prokhorov. If he doesn't get on the ballot, that would be a clear difference because those candidates were allowed on the ballot. And that's obviously like one of the big reasons to assume they were, you know, agreed upon and that they're playing by the rules and so on. Let's say Nadezhdin does get on the ballot. What is there to say? If he does make it uh, on the ballot, it's going to create a very interesting dynamic because he's basically going to get like as unusually an unexpected amount of political support, both domestically also from abroad. So, and this kind of becomes like a very funny, semi-toxic, semi-sweet uh, uh, political asset in these circumstances. And it's very likely he's going he's gonna to win the elections, but he's going to send a very powerful signal to the Russian voters. Okay, this kind of competition is still possible. So it's basically like pushing the limits of what is okay and what is still not okay in the Russian politics. So the very fact of him being on the ballot is already quite significant. Again, given the the extent of repressiveness of the Russian political regime, etc. So elections and authoritarian regimes, they play the signaling uh, kind of signaling function. And it's kind of, it would vividly demonstrate that, uh, okay, so we don't support the border like Putin. So there is still something for you to do. So he's being basically instrumentalized by those who like really sick and tired of the current situation. So in this sense, yes, even he, if he is like Prokhorov or uh, Sobchak, so for me, it doesn't really matter so what. Yeah, he's pretty much like that. But again, so if he can be skillfully used by the Russian opposition voters. So I think this move already looks kind of elegant and beautiful in a way. Another question I have, and this is sort of inspired by the general skepticism or cynicism that that foreigners have when they even hear about Russian elections, let alone some individual candidate who may or may not be allowed on the ballot. There's usually, if it, for instance, if I tell anybody anything, or if I hear you know feedback about any kind of Medusa reporting about anything election related, and this is partly why I was a little reluctant to even do this podcast episode because the subject itself, it, like it, people don't don't really like. They, it's not that they don't want to hear it. I don't think it's that they don't even they can't even conceive of like Russian elections as something to take seriously. It's like oh, there's this candidate and he's got an anti-war you know platform and he's fighting to compete against Putin in the election. You tell a lot of people this and they look at you like why are you even looking at this? Like Putin's going to win re-election. This guy will either not be allowed on the ballot or he'll be arrested or will be, like whatever. Do you have a response for them? My answer would be kind of somewhere, again, as always, if you talk to an academic, something in between. Um, this is how I started my academic career. So I was genuinely puzzled. So why on earth an autocracy would hold elections? Because it doesn't make any sense. 
well, for laypersons, so it's, it's ridiculous, just, you know, a uh, waste of money, funds, and, and time. So what's the point? And then I realized there was like kind of a plethora of explanations why it still makes sense for autocrats to hold. So I'm not going to give you a lecture on that. So I would emphasize that the way we look at those, these elections is kind of is quite different from how we look at democratic elections. Of course, we don't really look at the uh, at numbers because quite often these numbers are simply fake or the real competitors are not in the ballot. So what's the point? So this is not a competition. So it's like looking at Brazilian elections like at the times of military junta. So, so we were interested in some other things. Basically, if to sum up, so why they still hold these elections? So first of all, it's kind of a, a signal for the inner circle let's say, like Putin's in a circle, that he's still alive, he's still capable of serving this kind of, you know, uh, focal point or rishala, I don't know, like what, what would be the English equivalent of that. The person who still serves like the, the one who can coordinate or solve internal pro- uh, problems or issues and conflicts. George W. Bush called himself the decider. That's how I've always in, it translated. What is it? Rishala is like the yeah. Russian word? It's just kind of a criminal jargon. Yes, yes. Oh, so, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's decider. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And it's not because Putin is so cool or he has like some special skills. No, he's just, it's his positionality uh, within the Russian elites that makes him so crucial. So this is why for him personally, it's extremely important to demonstrate the capacity to garner these votes. So the very fact matters. It doesn't matter for the international audience. So of course, it, calls, it has a kind of a second order effects to demonstrate, I know, to the US public or to someone else, oh, he's still popular because some people would probably genuinely believe, oh, these are like 80%. Wow. People really like him. Is the general public, is it like the first audiences are the elites, then the general public, then the international audience? That's how I look at these elections. Of That's course. like the layers of this cake that we're eating. Yeah, pretty much. So, of course, it also makes sense to show to the opposition, okay, we don't really care how clean or how honest these elections look like, but we can, we can play dirty. And it's even kind of makes sense to show that they can do that because they kind of you know, flex their muscles. So yes, we can. So what could you do to us? Again, this is a pretty kind of criminal <laughs> way of, but again, it's not unique to Russian context. If you look at Malaysian elections or Kenyan elections back in the days, or like any other Egyptian elections, so like Zimbabwe, Zambia, and so on and so forth. So this is not something like, I would say, exotic for Russia or typical of Russia. So there are so many other electoral authoritarian, competitive authoritarian regimes that operate pretty much in the same way. With some slight variations, of course, but still it's pretty much the same logic behind. So he demonstrates his capacity to gather sufficient number of votes. So he sends the signal to the elites, first of all, he's still kind of, again, alive, literally, and politically. So, and then, so there are some other functions these elections perform. So when it comes to legislative elections like State Duma, so it's also, it performs a function of cooptation. So they just distribute spoils and uh, perks and stuff. So it has like a very clear-cut political economy behind. So again, these election, elections is a pretty much instrumental thing. Uh, it's not completely useless, but they just, you know, occupy a slightly different place in the political landscape. One thing I've, I've noticed, the elections, they pop up in a lot of stories that aren't necessarily about the race, but they're, they mention the elections insofar as to say, oh, well, they're not doing this until after March because they don't want to disrupt the kind of like the popular vote, essentially. But a lot of it has to do with talk of a second mobilization wave, talk of like economic austerity to get more, even more behind the military and things like that. Is the, Do you agree that that's generally the expectation that after the election, as we've seen in sort of previous cycles where, I guess, like the most memorable one for me is 2012, after these these winter protests, Putin is, they were largely in, in sort of response to Putin returning. There were some kind of democratic gestures, but then when he comes back, they, there's this turning of the screws, as the Russians, as the Russian phrase is. And so, do you expect 
kind of even more of, of the militarization to come after the Putin's you know next and latest greatest reelection. Here, I actually absolutely agree with you. So I personally, since well, many of us we still have relatives or like friends uh, in Russia, and obviously when I'm asked by these people, okay, so what do you think about that? So my like personal recommendation would be like a personal advice: please just you know get rid of the country if you think that you might be summoned. So if there is a slight possibility that can happen, so I think it's a good way, good time now uh, before the elections to kind of you know get this you know sorted out. Otherwise, it can it's going to get worse after the election. So they there is clearly I'm not a military specialist to the extent I understand I'm reading the situation. So they desperately need more people in the battlefields. So and again, the price of human the cost of human life in Russia is extremely like low. It's, it's close to zero, if not less. <laughs> so in, and in this sense, I would expect something akin to a second wave of mobilization. But we also, from the legal point of view, it's important to remember that all the kind of, you know, legal decisions that would allow for the uh, permit for the second draft are already in place. So the State Duma or anyone else, they don't need to do anything. It can happen literally next day after the presidential election. So, I mean, and given the, all the laws and legislation that was adopted during the summertime in 2023, so like, there are all the hints, all the cues that kind of, you know, provides a quite clear evidence that something bad is going to happen. So, and if we go back in time, so even like when the Russian political regime was looked more vegetarian, how people call it, so and less bloodthirsty, still, so we observe this kind of, you know, cycles of unpopular measures, including economic austerity, as you rightly mentioned. So this is, again, this is not, again, too unique to authoritarian politics. Autocrats are just, you know, have more discretion over that. Any, is there any hopeful note? I'm trying to think of a of a positive way to end this 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 podcast episode. Let's go back to Nadezhdin, I guess. I mean, people lining up and like expressing themselves—that's good, right? There's something good here. Like, I mean, it's a it's a huge exaggeration, I think, to say, "Oh, this is Russian politics," you know, reborn or reinvigorated or something like this. But I do, just on a personal level, I can see people experiencing some level of joy. They've found the thing they can do that, like, is loosely connected to reality that that uh, expresses their, you know, the, a feeling they feel like they can't express anymore. So that's good, right? <laughs> yeah, well, that's absolutely good. So I was honestly surprised that even, like, this campaign turned out to be as successful as it is now. And it's kind of interesting, like, Nadezhdin, so his last name means stands for hope in Russian. So and uh, if we... We tried to look for some uh, successful examples of kind of, you know, unite opposition around like a, one candidate or a party and that actually succeeded. In the end, it's like it uh, was Malaysia in 2018 and the party was called exactly Alliance for Hope. So, I mean, if we can try to find some parallels. So hope is a very popular logo motto uh, when it comes to politics. So in this sense, Boris is playing a good game. And of course, well, we can't exclude that He's not going to be on the ballot. And if he's not still, I mean, still, uh, like Gutkov, Dmitry Gutkov said, like a very, I think, important thing. He demonstrated what is still possible. And it's really important for people queuing to put their signature to see each other, to kind of, you know, shake each other's his, uh, hands and see, okay, we're not alone. I'm not crazy one. So especially in Russia, especially in, in the remote cities. Again, it kind of, you know, goes go against this isolation, optimization, uh, kind of, you know, not campaign, but policies towards the rest of the Russian population, like demobilization, like, you know, uh, keeping them at bay. So it's something like demonstrate something else so that we still have some grounds for collective action, for collective thinking. We can uh, discuss things. So and actually what is going on now in Russia is not OK. It's not normal and you're not the crazy one. So and you have someone uh, something to discuss with some other people. So, again, if people see each other and can shake each other's hands, 
it's already quite an achievement. So I know my Ukrainian colleagues are not going to be happy with this. So, But again, we need to start at least with something, because if we systematically belittle and devalue whatever is happening now within the Russian context, nothing is going to grow out of this. So, I mean, encouraging and kind of providing support for even like teeny tiny baby steps that may not look very convincing from the outside. Again, we're sitting in the safety of, of democratic countries these days, enjoying freedom of speech. So I can call a spade a spade. The majority of my competitors can't. So, and this is a luxury. And in this sense, yeah, so like, you know, encouragement, support, especially from the Russian political exile national community. So like, the more we do that, so we kind of, you know, we're buying more lottery tickets. So you can't win a lottery if you don't buy a ticket, right? So in here, we kind of statistically increase the chance that something good may happen. So it's still better than doing nothing. So in this sense, so this is my positive message, <laughs> probably. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.